This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, all our Torah Anytime viewers. We are learning tonight, Le'iloi Nishmas, Miriam Bas Bracha, Feral Bas Pinchas, Sarah Rachel Bas Michal, and Michal Ben Eliezer. Okay, uh, so we are continuing and hopefully Bezat Hashem also concluding the third and final class on the life, the amazing life, the story of Rabbi Akiva. So we left off last week that um, Rabbi Akiva's wife, first wife actually, Rachel, passed away. And shortly after she passed away, also his son uh, passed away as well. And he was going through uh, these, uh, during the, uh, these difficulties that he was going through, he felt comforted by the fact that he had a lot of people that came to, to his son's uh, funeral because he realized that they're not coming for actually his son, but they're actually coming because of the Torah. And because, why did he feel good? Because through his son's passing, he, it, it helped in, in uh, uh, making a big, um, you know, Kiddush Hashem. So, the, um, and, and I also have to apologize because there was, um, I've got, uh, you know, a few, a few emails regarding last week's class. It was some sort of, uh, issue on the audio, so I apologize. It was only about two minutes. There was not that much that you missed. I think the part that was missed in the last week's class in the, in the audio problem was in the transfer between the emperors. So we'll go very, uh, quickly over it because well, I don't think, I, from my, from my understanding, I listened to it over and I don't think it was any major issues, uh, major parts in there. But, in any case, so the emperors that throughout this series was Domitian. Then after Domitian came Nerva. After Nerva came Trajan. After Trajan came Hadrian. The time period that we are right now is Hadrian, right? And we we spoke about it, um, you know, the assassination. We think we spoke about that last class as well. That's where Trajan uh, got assassinated. So right now we are in the time period where Rabbi Akiva um, he lost his wife, he lost his child, and there is a new emperor in town, and that emperor is Hadrian. So. Hadrian, uh, you know, was, was, uh, told about, you know, the Jews. The Jews are so smart. The Jews are so great. The Jews are so, you know, full of wisdom. So he says, listen, let me meet one of them. So he met with Rabbi Yeshua. And he goes to Rabbi Yeshua and he says, uh, you know, what, what science do you specialize? Like what, like what, where is your wisdom? Where, which particular area of, of focus is your wisdom? So Rabbi Yeshua answered, so listen, it says the Torah, Deals with everything, and it literally does deal with everything. If you actually go into the depths of Torah, you learn everything from mathematics to physics to, like, literally, it encompasses everything. So he said, okay, so he started asking him questions. Very, very particularly, you know, questions in, in a very interesting uh, manner. He says, says, uh, Hadrian, he goes to Rabbi Shua and he says, how long does it take a hen to hatch her egg? So Rabbi Shua answered him, 21 days. The time it takes to blossom of a hazel, uh, hazel tree to, uh, ripen. So then he says, how long is the gestation of a dog? He says, 50 days, the time it takes for a fig to ripen. And he says, a cat, 52 days. And he, again, he, he, he compares them all to a, uh, um, also fruits or vegetables or anything like that. You know, um, a pig, 60 days, like an apple, a fox, six months, like a grain. And he goes on and he, one after another, he's like shooting him off. Maybe he, it was the science that he read that day and that's why he was particular about that. But he kept on asking the same things about gestation of different animals. Or Rabbi Shua came one after another until he came to the snake. And he came to the snake and also Rabbi Shua said something and the Hadrian was like, aha, our science is different than that. You know, we say, until now, like, apparently it was all correct. And when he came to the snake, all of a sudden it was all different. So Rabbi Shosh says, what can I tell you? He says, the Torah is true, it's legitimate, everything is 100% true. He says, your science must be wrong. 
So I see you feel pretty confident about your Torah over here. So he says, if you're so confident in your Torah, I want you to go and uh, debate against the wise scholars in uh, from my uh, from my residence. And uh, he, it's not like you know we're like you know I you know respectfully decline. I would love to. I've been so backed up with like stuff back in my place. It was Hadrian was like, you're going to come, you're going to debate, and if you fail and if you lose the debate, you are going to die. Right, uh, uh, high stakes. So um, he goes and they start debating. Now the way that they debated over there, they were very twisted. Uh, I guess the scholars back then, they would ask questions and they would sort of try to direct the person to answer a certain way. And then based on that answer, come from a totally different angle and say, aha, you see, based on your answer over there, and they try to, you know, work on, on that way. So they go over to Rabbi Yeshua and they say, uh, and they say, if, if a man asks a woman to marry him and she refuses, would it make sense for him to try his luck with a woman of a higher social standing or not? So Rabbi Yeshua, you know, they asked like a question like out of the blue. Rabbi Yeshua took a nail and he went over to the bottom of the wall, tried to put it in, didn't work. And then he went to a higher part where it was, you know, supposed to fit and he put, and went right in. And he said to them, and he said, um, and he, uh, actually he didn't even say, he didn't say anything. That's how he answered them. So they replied back to him and they said, uh, you know, God, who did God first give the Torah? God didn't first give the Torah to the Jews. It says that God goes over to every single nation, and every single nation goes and refuses the Torah. And all of a sudden, finally, like, you know, like, okay, God's out of options. To so be like, okay, there's some slave-subjugated nation that we, you know, hey, uh, you guys want to accept the, the, the Torah? We'll be like, yep, we'll take them. So what does that show? That show that we're the bottom of the tadpole. We're the end. We're like the lowest, the lowest rungs. So... Rabbi Yeshua, this is how he answered them. He says, no, just the opposite. He says, that nail, it was on the lower part. It didn't fit in because that wasn't its place for it. It fit in where it went to its place with. If a woman wants to go and get married to somebody, if she found somebody in the lower standing, does it, it doesn't mean that she can't go to a higher standing. She just didn't find the one that was meant for her. So too, you know, the Jewish people, it wasn't that we are on a lower standing than anybody else. Rather, that we, it wasn't, we were always meant to be together. But, you know, it was, you know, what had to be put in the right place. And they kept on asking questions after questions, like, you know, you know, very deceiving uh, questions. And Rabbi Yeshua answered all of them. Finally, they actually declared for themselves defeated. They said, listen, he got us. We can't, we can't answer anything. Hadrian was so impressed by that, that he decided that he's going to go and convert to Judaism. He's going to go. And it was like, you're like, we're going to rebuild the temple. Everything's going to be awesome. We're going to, you know, everything's going to be great. And the Jews were actually comparing him to Darius II. Darius II, who, who built the second uh, Bet HaMikdash. However, uh, this didn't last. Hadrian was a very flip-flopper. And just as quick as he had this enthusiasm for Judaism, he went like 180 degrees completely against Judaism. Not only completely against Judaism, he started, you know, making very, very serious decrees against Judaism. And he went and he, um, and he, and he placed a, a, uh, a governor in Judea by the name of Tinius Rufus. Uh, this is, a, if you look it up in um, the secular sources, it's pronounced Tinius, Tinius Rufus. In the Jewish uh, surf, uh, sources, it's pronounced Turnus Rufus. So we're going to use a Jewish source uh, as, as Turnus Rufus. So he is placed as the governor of, of Judea. Now, he goes and... Uh, um, and and uh, he starts uh, putting very very uh, bad decrees. Obviously, the Jewish people were in a you know great despair. You know how it is when you're going you know you, you you hit the peak. All of a sudden, you see the you know the light at the end of the tunnel, and then all of a sudden it gets really dark again. So the Jews were obviously very um, very down, and you know you know had all their hopes and, and dreams shattered. So Rabbi Yeshua actually went and he comforted him. He says, "Listen," he says, "Imagine what would have happened if Hadrian would have converted." He says, "You think he would have kept to all the laws of Judaism? No, he's going to start making all his excuses and all." Those things that is allowed, and this is allowed, and this is allowed. At the end, he's going to abolish Judaism. Who knows how many people is going to take along with it? 
So he says, in fact, this uh, was was better that it happened this way. Um, a short while later, Abishon ben Hanania, which was Rabbi of Rabbi Akiva's um, teachers, passed away. And Tinius Rufus, Tinius Rufus, I'm sorry, besides, you know, going all these crazy decrees, he also had a people force them to worship a statue of the emperor. And if you didn't, you were punished by death. And there were two great sages that were punished, that were, that got punished with death. Rabbi Shem ben Esanel and Rabbi Ishmael. And, uh, obviously it was a very tragic uh, time for the Jewish nation. But Rabbi Kiva goes when he, when he eulogized them. He says, you know, you should not, you know, it, it, where our cry should not be for the lost uh, sages. He says there must be something bad that's coming up. Because God took them away that there's not going to witness something bad that's going to happen. And, uh, you know, which was true. And which we'll soon see what uh, what happened. There was, um, you know, a, a next part, which is I had a very, very hard time to figure out where it goes chronologically. So I'll, I'll give you both ideas. And this is the part where Rabbi Akiva's students pass away. So we know Rabbi Akiva had 24 thousand students, even the biggest yeshiva today, which we know we have Torah flourishing that we never had Torah before, Baruch Hashem and Chakim Yirbu. But you, you had 24, one teacher had 24,000 students back in that day. That was a tremendous amount. And every single one of them died. Every single one of them died from between, Lagba, from, I'm sorry, from Pesach to Shavuot. They all died. And this is one of the reasons why we are in a mourning for the first, uh, you know, uh, 32 days. Which is also, one of, why, did, why did they die? Because, says They didn't respect each other, didn't honor each other uh, one to another. The obvious question is, how is that possible? How? You're talking about, not like, you know, it's not like a student that, you know, some guy comes, you know, once in a while to a class and be like, yeah, he's my student, he's my student, he's my student. I mean, come on. These are people that are, that are giants in the Torah. They were giants. So how is it that they were able to fall apart in, in one, you know, very seemingly obvious mitzvah that you have to honor your friend. So I granted this is not the time, don't we have the scope of the, of the time allotted to us to be able to go and, and delve into this, but I'll give you just a, a short reason and just to have a little bit of understanding that actually my father showed it to me from the Ben Yoda. He says uh, the Gemara, when it speaks about it, it doesn't say 24,000 students, it says 12,000 pairs. Which means the chavutas, they were, they were matched up. And Rabbi Kiva saw that they weren't, you know, they weren't honoring up to par. So what he did was, is he took someone really strong, at like a high level, and he took someone really weak and he parred them up together. Sort of like, okay, now get your balance so you'll be able to honor each other. But what happened was, they switched it around. They took it, so the strong guy said, listen, you know, look at the, I'm like the rabbi, I have to teach this guy. And so he didn't honor the guy. Then the other guy, the, the weaker guy says, listen, says, I'm learning with the stronger guy. Look at the level that I am. We're alert, we're chavutas together. So at the end, they didn't, uh, unfortunately, instead of, of getting greater honor, it went uh, and backfired and, and it, uh, you know, continued in the way that it was going. But the simple answer is, is that, um, on their level, when the greater that you are, the more that God is medakdek, is, is, uh, very, uh, particular in everything wrong that you do. So on their level, they did something that they shouldn't have done, and that was, they did not give the appropriate honor, and that's why they all, uh, died. And that's why kavod, if the numerical value for kavod is 32. They died for the first 32 days. Which actually wasn't the first 32 days, that they died through the period of, uh, um, from Pesach Tashavot, but they died for 32 days on the days that we say Tachnun, they died. The way they, we don't say Tachnun, which is 17 of those days, they did not die. Okay. But in any case, the part that I wanted to discuss was, where does this fit in? Where in the chronological lifetime, lifespan of Rabbi Akiva did these 24,000 people die? So, I saw two conflicting ideas, and I'm going to present both of them to you. Um, one of them was that it was, you know, they died on earlier in his life, not in the time period that we are right now. But however, I did see another idea that being that we're going to soon see the Rabbi Akiva supported the Bar Kokhba, which we're going to soon, you know, explain the, it was the Mashiach, or what everybody thought it was the Mashiach in that point in time. And he had an army. 
And there's one opinion that says that they died in the army because he supported them. They all fought in the army and they died. How did they die? The Gemara says Askara. They died in Askara is, uh, I think the translation that I saw was, was croup. was a, a very, very painful uh, death of suffocation, of like choking, uh, you know, something with the earways. So they died in that, in that manner. Then the question is asked, well, if they died in with a choking manner, if that's what the Gemara says, then how could they die at war? How could they die? So I saw another answer to that is that um, they, the reason why they died is they were actually uh, fighting a war and they got, uh, you know, they were pushed back to the desert. And in the desert is where they'd suffered the death of, of Ascalon. Now again, this is all back and forth and what's going on. But there is, so the, the opinion that we're going on now is that they actually died in this, in this uh, time period that we are now. But again, it's possible that they died uh, as well before. So, 24,000 students of Rabbi Kiva died. Now, we just take a moment over here. What could that do to a teacher? You know how many, you know what's the average per day? If you have 24,000, the average is like 750 people of, of his students dying a day. That means like every few minutes, someone will come over to Rabbi Akiva. He'd be like, you know, um, you know, one of your students died. Be like, oh, what am I, what happened? And they say, you know, like, oh, and, and you know, this is the name. I'd be like, are you, wow. And a few minutes later, another one, and another one, another one. Could destroy a person. In fact, after, after that like short period of time that they all died, a normal person will be like, God, I get the point. I obviously got to stop teaching, uh, you know, Torah because it's not working out. Like, 100% mortality rate is not a good rate, uh, you know, for, um, you know, that you could, you know, show people. So, like, oh, you know, how many students you had? I had uh, 24,000. Well, what happened to them? Says, uh, you know, they, they, they died. Says, how many? All of them. All 24,000. Be like, everyone be like, all right, you know, like, all right, um, we're going to go to the next shield, Torah. You know, <laughs> all right. Don't have such a good, uh, you know. But Rabbi Akiva didn't give up. Not only did Rabbi Kiva not give up, he went and then he found five more students. It's also a thing that those five students went and they agreed to learn. You know, I can imagine, be like 100%. And those five students that we had, that, 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 that he taught, is the reason why we have the oral law that we have today. It was, the, the time that Rabbi Kiva lived was a time of, of great prosecution against the Jewish people, against the Tamid Chachamim. And things were, were, were falling apart. We weren't allowed to give smicha. You weren't, there was, it was a terrible, terrible time for, for the Jewish people. And because of Rabbi Akiva, because of Rabbi Akiva's perseverance, because of his ability to go and continue teaching Torah, we, you know, Rabbi Sherem Ba'echai came from him. Rabbi Sherem Ba'echai was, you know, went and, and we have the Kabbalah, we have the, the Zohar because of him. You have Rabbi Meir. We have the Halakha from the Mishnah because of him. And in fact, you have the Sifra, the Sifri, the, the, the Sada Olam Zutra. The Sada, you know, you have so many, so much of the Torah that we have today is only because of Rabbi Kiva that he went and he continued after that. He did not give up and he went on. This is just a lesson. Right now, like I would pause for a second. It's a lesson that we have to learn. So no matter how much you fall and how much you suffer and how much you go, you have to keep on going. You have to keep on fighting. You keep because look at the greatness. And that's what Rabbi Kiva you say in Perkei Avos. says if you taught students when you're younger, don't stop teaching until you, even when teach when you're older. Because you don't know which ones are going to make it. And that is the same idea. We don't know what's going to do. What's that one thing that we're going to do that's going to push it over the edge? And that's what's going to... You look at people in business also. You look at people in the business world. The things that they made money with was not always the things that they thought they would make money with. They tried this, they tried this, and then something came up and they happened to do it and then bam, that's where they made it. So, and the same thing with spirituality. You have to try constantly. No matter what it is, what the situation is, you keep on fighting, you keep on pushing. Okay. Anyways, moving along with the story. The story, um, so Rabbi Kiva now has to deal with, he has 24,000 widows and countless more orphans. So, 
Rabbi Kiva didn't like step back and be like, listen, all right, you know, I'm sorry, you know, but uh, to each at your own and, you know, I got to continue, whatever it is. He went and he cared for each of the 24,000 orphans. Now that is a tremendous expense. How did he get that money? So he went over, there was a, uh, a, a Roman noblewoman that after her husband died, she came to Israel and she, um, she had a beachfront property. She had a very, she built a beautiful palace. She was very extremely wealthy that he would always, you know, go and ask money for her, you know, for donations and things like that. She was, she want, she, I don't think she was Jewish. It sounded like she was still not, you know, she said, but she was very interested in Judaism and, you know, the, so she wanted to live in Israel. So he goes over to her and he says to her, he goes over to her and he says, uh, you know, my dear uh, noble woman, I'm came, you know, he explains the whole situation, 24,000 suicide. She's like, that's terrible. He says, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I need a hundred thousand gold coins, you know, which is a tremendous amount of money, uh, back then. And, uh, she says, she says, of course I'll donate to your, to, to your cause. Absolutely. And, uh, Rabbi Kiva says, you know, not so fast. He says, I'm not coming here for a donation. She says, what are you coming here for? He says, I'm coming here for a loan. I want you to loan me the money, and in one year's time, I'm going to come back and pay it. So the noble woman, you know, steps back for a second and says, listen, she says, Rabbi Akiva, it says 100,000 gold coins, that's a tremendous sum, that could even impoverish me. He says, what guarantor are you going to give me? So Rabbi Akiva says, I'll give you all my, you know, all my possessions that I have, I'll give, put it as a, as, a guarantor, as a guarantor. And I'll get you 10 other wealthy, uh, wealthy men. And she says, no, 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 says, that's not going to be, I don't feel comfortable with that. So Rabbi Akiva says, fine, you know, what do you want? What, what do you want as a guarantor? So she says, I want you, uh, to put, place God and the sea. She lived by the sea. I want God and the sea to be the guarantor. She says, it's fine. As it be, as you said. And she goes and, and they, 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 uh, they sign the contract that, uh, the God, uh, and, and the sea, not the God of the sea, the God and the sea, the two are going to be the guarantors for the, uh, for the money. So, uh, Rabbi Kiva takes this money and he goes and he supports. He actually lent some people money so they could, uh, you know, start some business or whatever it is. And he actually supported the orphans and the widows and everybody that, that needed money. Because of that, he went and supported them. He goes and, and throughout the year he went and he started collecting from all the wealthy people. A year goes by and he gets the money. He gets the full amount, the 100,000 gold coins. And the time comes that he has to go and travel to return the money to, the, to, this, uh, to this woman. And unfortunately, he felt really sick. He felt bedridden sick. He lost consciousness at one point. So he was very, very sick and he couldn't go and he couldn't travel. Meanwhile, the day is up and she's waiting for her, you know, hundred, this is her fortune. And she's, and, and the, the sun is starting to set and she's, she's, you know, she's, she's getting crazy. She starts pacing back and forth on the beach and, you know, on, on her, on her front, uh, on her backyard over there. And she's like, she's like, what's going on over here? It's, like, it's almost, you know, and she, she's going out of her mind. And finally she sees like the day is almost over, right? Kiba's not here. So she looks up to God and she says, listen, God says, I gave it to your children so that they could do. He says, you're the guarantor, the God in the sea, pay me back. As she's saying this, she sees a chest floating in the ocean, this nice, big, beautiful chest. And she's watching this chest and this chest, you know, the waves slowly bring the chest to the, um, you know, to, to her property. And when she sees this chest, she couldn't even lift it up. It was so heavy. She calls her servant, says, bring this chest inside. They come, they run it and they said, open the chest. And the chest was locked. It was very hard for them. But after a long period of time, they were able to open it. And lo and behold, guess what's inside? Tons and tons of gold coins, gold diners. So now she's like, you know, she's starting to, you know, sweat a little bit. She's like, she's like, she's like count it up. And guess how much it was inside there? 100,000 gold coins came up in, in there and, and they're there. Now, a short while after that, Rabbi Akiva goes and he gets better and he comes back. And he says, you know, says, I'm sorry, I got held up. I couldn't, you know, I was, I was ill. I have the money for you. She says, no, no, no. He says, what do you mean? He says, we, you know, we mentioned this alone. I'll pay you back. He says, your guarantors took care of it. He's like, what do you mean? And she explains the whole situation. He says, you know, and she refused to take it. So this is also another source of where, where Abikiba got the, you know, wealth that he was able to distribute also more for the poor. But now the question is, where did this chest come from? How did, oh, 100,000 gold coins just float up out of, uh, out of nowhere? So there was, um, 
the emperor, which was Hadrian, um, didn't have the greatest relationship with his wife. And so the, and he didn't have either any children. So what he did, the way that they used to do it was, is that if they didn't have any children, they would sort of like adopt somebody who they want to be the next emperor. And the, because of their, you know, separate, you know, sort of relationship, he wanted to adopt one person. She wanted to adopt another person. And the one that Hadrian wanted to, to adopt, he wasn't the ambitious type. He was very, like, lazy, you know, like, you know. And the other one was very, very ambitious. He wouldn't want to become emperor, the one that she wanted to adopt. So they were constantly, you know, you know going back and forth. And then, uh, you know, the, the wife, um, I think her name was Sabina, she goes over to, you know, her guy, which his name was Varus. The other, uh, Hadrian's guy's name is Antonius. And she goes to Varus and he says, listen, he says, you gotta do something about, you know, you know, Hadrian's guy because, you know, he's really pushing for it. So, uh, Varus goes in and says, fine. He says, I have something in mind. And he goes and he, and they start chatting, these two, uh, these two young guys. And he says, he says, you know, he starts convincing him. He says, you know what a headache it is to be an emperor? He's like, oh, I can't even imagine. He says, nonstop, all oh, you have the headaches and all, you know. So, you know, Varys says, you know, is this really that hard? You know, because he knew he wasn't ambitious. He says, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> you don't want it. He says, what am I supposed to do? Hadrian wants to appoint me. I was, you know, he gets, I was like, I'll tell you a secret. Hadrian wants to appoint me as if he didn't know. And he says, he says, he says, you know what? I'm going to go and convince Hadrian that I'm not going to, I, I'm going to refuse the position. So Varys starts laughing. He says, are you kidding me? He says, Hadrian is emperor. Have you seen ever in his entire life somebody able to convince him something? Not going to happen. So he says, what am I supposed to do? So he says, listen, he says, you have the opportunity to do something that even the gods, back then they used to believe in a bunch of gods, even the gods don't have the opportunity to do. So he says, what, what, what do I have? What's the options do I have? And he says, you're able to take your life. If you take your life, then you won't have all these troubles, all these problems of being emperor. So he says, you know what, that's a good idea. And Hadrian was so careful with, with his, with his guy that he always had like a bodyguard with him. And they're walking, you know, the, so he leaves, they part their ways and they're walking the bodyguard, they're walking on the boardwalk over there. And he sees a boat. This, this, uh, um, Antonio sees a boat. He jumps in the boat, he sees this is a chance and he starts rolling away as fast as he can. The bodyguard sees him, he starts screaming, he says, where are you going? And he starts screaming back, don't worry about it, don't follow me, you know, leave me alone. And of course the bodyguard goes, jumps in the next one and starts rolling right after him. And there, you know, he's speeding away and he's going with all his might and he's actually, you know, gaining a lot of ground over, over the bodyguard. Eventually he gets into the middle of the ocean, the river, wherever they want, and he jumps himself in and he, tr- and he drowns himself. And he was actually successful in drowning himself. And, uh, so what happened was is that, is that, he, is that they, you know, they brought the body back to, uh, it actually took them a while to find the body. They eventually, they told Hadrian about the, the situation and Hadrian went berserk. He went crazy. At what, at the particular time that he, he actually moved into an area near Egypt, or it actually might have been Egypt, that, uh, the Egyptian, uh, you know, place, they came over and they gave him a nice big donation, a chest full of gold coins as sort of a welcoming gift. You know, the, you know, good, uh, that's the way they used to, you know, get on the, you know, now they call them bribes. Back then it was a gift. <laughs> but, uh, you know, think of it as the same idea. So, that I, and and he's he's mourning for his his uh, um, you know for his his child whatever it was his adopted son and he's going thank you and he's going crazy and they give him this gift all of a sudden so in his rage in, in his in, throughout his mind thank you very much he goes and he takes the he he had this property was also on the boardwalk he takes he takes the the um, the chest and he throws it into the ocean and he st- you know starts you know ripping out his hair he's mourning the way they they used to mourn this is the same chest that went and traveled all the way to the 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 woman that gave the donation to Rabbi. Akiva. So, Hadrian, he he goes and um, very very uh, you know upset of of the Jews and as well as as placing Turnus Rufus as the one who is in charge. He goes over. And Turnus Rufus decides that there are things that you're not allowed to do in Judaism anymore, and they are no more believe me not, no more circumcision, not allowed to. Also, now I'll keep Shabbat, 
And finally, they force you to serve idol worship. So, um, you know, during during the time when 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 Hadrian, the reason why you know he, the reason why he was in Egypt as opposed to the place that he was before, I believe, if I'm mistaken, it was in Egypt, is that he he didn't like his previous palace, so he sort of moved moved this palace. So when he went to this new palace, Rabbi Akiva decided to go and to you know to plead. He says, "Listen, you know, the governor." Turnus Rufus is causing us many problems. He wanted to go and plead for for the Jewish cause, and at the same point in time, Turnus Rufus also came to the um, to the emperor. Just you know, whatever, as as part of I don't know if it was a delegation. He was he was there at the time. So Rabbi Kiva goes over and says, "Look, he he's not letting us no Shabbat, no circumcision. You know, forcing us to serve idols. Um, he's he's choking us." So you know, the emperor Hadrian goes over to Turnus Rufus and he says, "You know, can you you know what do you say to these allegations?" So he says, I, I have a response to all of them. So Turnus Rufus, now there's like a debate going between Rabbi Akiva and Turnus Rufus in front of, in front of Hadrian. So Turnus Rufus goes over to Rabbi Akiva and he says, what are more beautiful, the works of God or the works of human beings? So again, they all had the same mentality of switching, you know, like uh, trying to, to get that person in the, in the, in the hole. And Rabbi Akiva answers, uh, the works of human beings. So Turnus Rufus says, oh, are you serious? He says, come, look outside. He says, can human beings create the heavens and the earth? So Rabbi Kiva says, what are you talking about? Things that are out of our control. You told me what are greater, the works of man or the works of God. You gotta give us something that's in the both, in the realm of both. And Rabbi Kiva comes out, and he comes back a short while later with two things in his, in, one thing in each hand. One was kernels of wheat, and the other one was a, you know, like this master, you know, loaf, you know, baked by this, like, the best baker. And he says, which one do you want to eat? He says, you want to chew on the kernels, or you want to eat this, this loaf? He says, this was created by, by God, this was created by human. Now you tell me which is greater. So, he goes, Rabbi Turtis Rufus goes and he says, why do you guys, uh, circumcise yourself? You know, God made you uncircumcised. You should, why are you, why are you changing it? And Rabbi Kiva says, I knew that you were leading towards that, and that's why I answered you the way I answered you. He says, cause God gave this world in a way that is not complete. It's not finished. Loaves of bread, uh, bread don't grow. We have to, you know, there are certain things that we have to do to the world to perfect it. And one of the things that we have to do is, is as a job, is to take a spirit, a physical world and move it to a spiritual world. And that's what we do when we're, when we're circumcising ourselves. We're sort of partnering up with creation and we're completing it, uh, uh, you know, the, with the, the creation. Hadrian was very, you know, happy with the response and he says, well put. He says, circumcision is back on the table, you'll have to do it. So, Turnus Rufus goes and, and he goes to the next one and he says, you know, Shabbat. You guys celebrate Shabbat. He says, what makes you honor Shabbat over any other day of the, of the week? Honor any other random day. So uh, Rabbi Kiva goes over back to him and he says, you know, why are you the, the, the governor of Judea? He says, let, let the, you know, Hadrian go give anybody else the job. So Turnus Rufus goes and he says, he says, he wanted to honor me. He says, Rabbi Kiva says, so too, God wants to honor the, sh- the, the Sabbath. And he says, in fact, you know, he says, we know that the, in, in the, when the Jews were in the desert, they ate man. When did they eat, when did the man fall? Six days a week. It did not fall on Shabbat, because on Shabbat, that's when, it, you know, everything, everything rested. So, you know, um, Turnus Rufus goes and says, yeah, sure, thanks. Give me, give me, give me some proof that happened hundreds and uh, who knows how long ago. He says, give me something that happened today. He says, if you look what's going on today, he says, it rains on Shabbat? Yes. The wind blows on Shabbat? Yes. There's no difference. You're telling me back then it used to be a difference. Right now there's no difference. Why honor Shabbat? Go pick Sunday. Go pick a Tuesday. So, Rabbi Kiva says, and he says, alright. He says, you want something today? He says, in India, there's a river called the Simbatyan River. The Simbatyan River is a river that six days a week, the rocks and the dirt, everything jumps. It, it jumps up and down. And the water jumps around, around. Shabbat, it's all rested. So go and check. So, uh, you know, the, um, Turnus Rufus goes and says, yeah, thank you very much. Who's going to go travel to India now to go check your thing? Very smart of you. Go check something across the world. He says, give me something from around here. 
So he says, fine, you want something around here? He says, your father is buried in this area. Go to your father's father gravesite, and you'll see because of all his sins that he committed in his life, he's suffering, you know, retribution in the next world. For six days of week, you'll see smoke coming out of his grave because he's suffering in, in Gehenom. He's suffering in hell. The seventh day, which is Shabbat, the, it rests, and you're not going to see it. Uh, uh, you're not going to see it. Uh, you know, any smoke come up. And so it was. And Hajin again goes, and he says Shabbat back on the table. Finally, he goes and he says to on the um, you know on on the serving idols. And he goes and he says, why does God hate us? It says, you know, he asks him, uh, why does God hate us? He quotes from Malachi. It says that, you know, that, that God hates Esau in Malachi, chapter 1, verse 3. So Rabbi Kiva replies and he says, listen, you know, this is great. He says, you know, I had a dream. And I had a dream I had two dogs. One was the name was Rufus, and that was a male. And the female was named Rufina. And, and you know, Ternus Rufus starts getting beat red. And he says, how dare you name dogs? After me and my wife. His, his name was Rufus. His wife's name was Rufina. And he turns beat red and he starts getting really angry. He says, you should be... And meanwhile, Hadrian finds this very comical. You know, he's laughing. You know, <laughs> he's enjoying himself. He's, you know, dreaming about the, the governor and his wife and being dogs. So, he... And Rabbi Kiva says, hey, what's, what's the problem? Why are you getting so upset at me? He says, you eat, the dog eats. You go to the bathroom, the dog goes to the bathroom. You sleep with the dog. What is different between you and the dog? Absolutely nothing. You're exactly the same as a dog. So, he, he goes and he says, furthermore, he says, but look... You're getting upset that I'm calling you in the same, uh, you know, of a dog, and you guys are very similar. He says, what do you think God, how do you think God feels when he has people that he created the heaven and the earth, and he created everybody, and then they go, and they make a God out of wood, and a God out of stone, and they go and they worship this God. He says, don't you think God is going to be angry? Don't you think that's why God, you know, that's why God hates, hates the people that serve Avodazah? And he says, and that's why we hate people, we, we don't serve Avodazah, we don't follow in your ways, we go, we stay away from that. So, Rabbi, uh, um, Hadrian goes and he says, you're not, you're, you're not, you're, you're acquitted from that as well. Rabbi Kiva leaves, everything is good, Baruch Hashem, but Ternus Rufus goes home defeated, depressed, you know, dejected, and he goes and he says, you know, his wife sees him, his wife Rufina sees him, and he says, you know, my dear, you know, Hadrian, he says, you know, you know, what's going on? He says, you look, you know, downtrodden, depressed, well, you know, what, what happened? And he says, this is Rabbi Akiva, this guy constantly brings me down. He constantly shames me in front of the emperor. So, she says, he says, let me take care of him. And he says, he's like, you're going to take care of him? He's like, how are you going to take care of him? He says, don't worry about it. Let me take care of him. She was a very attractive woman. And she goes and she dresses very, very, in, you know, very, uh, you know, fancy clothes. And she goes to visit Rabbi Akiva with the, the idea of, of seducing him. And he, Rabbi Akiva sees her and he does three things, the Gemara says. He does, he spits, he laughs, and then he cries. So then she stares at him at this, you know, majestic, you know, Tamid Chacham. And she says, why'd you do that? So he says, you know, I spat because, you know, I realized, you know, where you come from, your origins. And furthermore, he says, your physical beauty is not something that I deem beautiful. And we know there's a different, uh, there's a, in, in Abu Dhabi Natan, there was, uh, um, you know, there was a certain person that wanted to also seduce Rabbi Akiva. And he sent him to a woman of the night. And, um, you know, Rabbi Akiva, like, all night they tried to seduce him, and he refused. The next day, they went over back to this, to the person that said them. He says, don't you ever embarrass us again. We've never been this humiliated in our entire life. So he calls over to him. He says, how were you, the person that sent them, he says, how are you able to withstand the temptation? So, you know, Rikiva says, what am I supposed to do? He says, you know, they eat non-kosher food. And the odor of non-kosher food, you know, you know, disgusts me. He says, I, can't, I found it, you know, vulgar. It was like, oh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't even deal with it. So Rikiva goes to her and he says, listen, he says, you know, it's, you know, your, your beauty is not what I deem beautiful. That's why I spat. And also I saw your, your origin. Uh, I laughed 
I cannot tell you why. And he cried, and he cried like literally, a tears coming down his in his face. And he says, and he says, you know, first of all, what you, what, you know, I cried is is what you're end up in. You're going to end up, you know, being eaten by by worms. A woman is such a great, pretty compared to the end of the world standards. You're going to end up eaten just like everybody else. And he says, but even furthermore, he says that your your soul is going to is going to go into the depths of Gehenom. He says, what have you accomplished in your life? He says, you have done nothing that you could contribute to the purpose of creation. You literally did zero, like nothing. He says, and says, what's going to be with your soul? Your soul is going to be end up, you know, he said this with sincerity, and, that, and, and it's really, if you, we stop and think about it, it's, there's so many people in this world, unfortunately, that what have they contributed to the, to, to, uh, to the purpose of creation? The purpose of creation is not to go and, and run after money. The purpose of creation is not to go and run after the desire. The purpose of creation is to get closer to God. The purpose of creation is to, is a Torah. We see that there is ways to grow yourself, to fix yourself. And says, and what have people accomplished for that? How many can we say that actually went and, and went to the purpose of creation? So she was very taken aback by this, by the sincerity and by his, by his, you know, the ability to speak. And, you know, it really shook her up. And she says, you know, dear rabbi, she says, you know, says, what can I do? So she began to cry also. And she says, is it still possible for me to change? And then she goes and says, rabbi, can I convert? She says, may I convert? And he says, you can and you may. And, you know, they leave it at that. She actually goes and she, you know, she actually divorced because she decided that she wants to convert to Judaism. She brought this idea to her husband, which obviously was very against it, and she divorced him. She divorced him, she took a lot of the wealth as well, and she, uh, you know, she went and she converted to Judaism. A short while, I don't know exactly how long after conversion, she went and she actually went and married Rabbi Akiva. And that's why he laughed. He said to Gemara, you know why he laughed? Because he saw in Ruach HaKodesh that I'm going to end up marrying you. He says that he realized, because I remember his, his wife Rachel passed away, and he saw in Ruach HaKodesh that, that he's going to end up marrying her. But obviously he couldn't tell her to her, uh, that. And that's, uh, and that's why, um, he left. Okay. So, uh, during this time, like we said, the, the, um, the situation with the, the, between the Romans and the Jews were, were, you know, very, very, in, in not good terms. And, in fact, the, the Turnus Rufus actually went and he, uh, put an Avodah Zarah. The, I believe it was, a, it was a temple of Jupiter on the Kodesh HaKadoshim. And the place where the temple was, he put Avodah Zarah. So needless to say, the Jews, it was a rebellion in the brewing. There was something going on over there. And uh, during this time, there was, there was uh, you know, word started, started, some guys started getting very popular. His name was Shimon ben Koziba. And uh, people started saying that this is the guy, he's Mashiach. Very, very strong guy, very charismatic guy. You know, goes in the way of Torah. He literally had character traits of the Mashiach. You know, born like everything. So you know, it, people, the um, the rabbis started going and you know, seeing seeing is this uh, really the the Mashiach? And the, his uncle was Rabbi Lazar Hamudai, which was able to confirm his lineage that he was you know that he was in the correct lineage. And Rabbi, you know, there was there was some sages that said he's not the Mashiach. Rabbi Yosef ben Kisma uh, was one of them. He uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Torsa also was one of them, and he said this was not the Mashiach. But Rabbi Akiva, which was the leader of generation. He said he is the Mashiach. And he said about him, he went and investigated, and he said, this is the Mashiach. And he, inve- he, ve- he said about him a pasuk in Bamidbar, in uh, Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17, which is a translation, a star has come f- forth from Yaakov, a scepter from Israel, which means there's a star. And that's why he started, he started being called, instead of Shem Bar Kuziba, he started calling Bar Kokhba. Bar Kokhba is like the star. He started calling the, uh, the star. And needless to say, when you have Rabbi Akiva, the leader of the generation, endorsing you as the Mashiach, so people from all over the world, the Jews started coming in, and they started joining the Mashiach's army. You know, there was a, you know, there was a rebellion coming off. And this Bar Kokhba, 
he was, uh, you know, he was very particular. He only took warriors into his, into his army. He was, uh, um, he, who did he pick? For the first, what he did was, is you want to join my army, you got to cut off your small finger. And uh, Chachamim started, you know, says, come on, you can't deform the human body. He says, you know how to do that. And uh, so he says, fine. He's going to, he says, instead of that, he says, you, while you're riding, while you're riding, you're going to have to be able to uproot a small tree, which is a tremendous, the, the feat of it and the strength that you have to. And he got, you know, the, the, the numbers, the sheer numbers that he has, which we have anywhere between 100 to 200,000 warriors in this strength. Nowadays, is, back then, remember, the population was much smaller than we have it now. So it was a tremendous, a tremendous amount, and it was actually a very great threat to the actual Roman Empire. So, the, um, as, as, Rabbi, as Rabbi Akiva endorsed uh, Bar Kokhla, and Bar Kokhla's army grew, they started fighting, they started making a rebellion, and started fighting against the Roman occupation in the land. And they were... Like zero to all, they are undefeated. The, the Jews started about, like like it was a joke already. It's like taking over the entire the entire Israel. And every time, like you know, the the Hadrian would send in one of his top generals. In fact, one of the generals that he sent in, Bar Kokhba, actually killed him with his own bare hands. It was you know like he couldn't they, they couldn't uh, um, you know um, you know control the the rebellion. And Hadrian found this as a threat to his empire because uh, remember the Roman Empire spread out through the entire world, so they had a lot of subjugated lands. Now if they hear that Israel's rebelling, because if it will be like okay Israel small country you know all right fine let them do what they do why bother with it we have plenty of money plenty of, uh, of of other resources that we need to deal with. But the the threat was that if they're rebelling, then every other country is going to be like well if they could do it then we can do it. So he's going to have a full Flood rebellion from all the lands. So he felt it as, as, a, as a threat to his entire kingdom, and he went and he put so much sources. In fact, we'll soon see that he actually brought in the majority of his troops, of his infantry, of his, of his, uh, all his warriors, of his army, went to Israel to fight against Bar Kokhba. So they obviously the Jews started believing in Bar Kokhba now because, like, he's going undefeated. You know, Rabbi Kiva, like, it sounded really good. And, you know, the, the shortly afterwards, Rabbi, uh, Bar Kokhba went and, you know, so Jerusalem was, was surrounded by a wall. And I, I believe he took, needed, like, a thousand men. They all, like, scaled the wall, went in and took over the city. They took over the entire, they took over the entire uh, uh, Jerusalem. And once the Jews started hearing about this, now everybody started flocking in. This is because he started actually building the Bet Hamikdash. They actually started rebuilding. The Bet Hamikdash was destroyed, you know, not to the, not that long ago. So they actually started rebuilding the Bet Hamikdash again. And when they started here, they were starting rebuilding. So Kohanim was starting to practice. They were starting to learn the laws of Korban. The Levim were practicing singing, and people started coming in. They were, obviously they destroyed the, the the temple over there, and they and they, and they brought it uh, down. Now. You know people that, uh, they always want to, um, they always want to be on the winning team. I like to call them in, in New York, the, we call them the Yankees. Um, back in that day, in my day, you know, um, not that I cared back then because I, I feel it's foolish and it's a waste of time, you know, following sports, but, um, you know, the Yankees won like consistently and the Mets, you know, Rahman al you know, you know, Shem should help them, but, you know, weren't, weren't so successful. So I don't know, maybe switch around, I'm not sure, uh, but, you know, so the, but why do people like the Yankees? Because they're winners. People like to be on the winning side. So, there was a group of Samaritans and Kutim. Uh, the way that it happened it was back in the in destruction of before the by the the of, the, of one of the of, of Israel, the king of Assyria. He went and he uh, we know this famous thing that he took the tw- the ten tribes and he subjugated them to different lands. So what he did was in order to get a a subjugation, he took the he took Israel and he sent the, he took the ten tribes, sent them to our faraway lands, and he took other the people from the other lands and he brought them in here. This way, it's very hard to form a rebellion. People are not used to the you know so so it, it's it keeps it under control. The problem was is that these people, the Samaritans, they uh, obviously didn't follow the Torah. 
And God, you know, they were in Israel. They didn't follow the Torah. God sent them lions against them. And they, 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 they told the king of Assyria, says, listen, you know, you play, people are getting torn apart. They don't follow the laws of the land. So the king of Assyria went and he brought priests. He brought the, you know, Chachamim sages to go and teach his people the way of the land. So they started, you know, honoring God, but they didn't, you know, leave their, their Avodah Zarah, their, their idolatry. So, these um, these people were always, um, you know, wasn't good terms with the Jews. And in fact, when the um, when the temple was was going to be rebuilt, uh, the second temple, so it, it started off with there was Zerubbabel and and Yoshua uh, Kohen Gadol. So when they started laying the foundation of the temple, these Samaritans came and said, "Listen, we want to contribute. We want to help you. We want to, you know, uh, you know, make sort of an alliance." And you know, the you know these two tzaddikim, they said, "No, no, no." Says, "We don't need you." Says, oh, well, "We don't need this part of the thing. We have God on our side. We we're not interested." Thank you, but no thank you. And they turned them down. And now, obviously, the Kutim were very, very upset about that. And they did not have a very good relationship. And we'll, so we, we spoke about it, actually, in Hanukkah, how the Kutim tried to badmouth, the, and the Samaritans tried to badmouth us to, uh, to Alexander the Great. And uh, that worked out because of, uh, of, you know, uh, the Shimon, the Shimon Atzadik. But we see that it's been like 500 years where there was constant problems with the uh, Kutim, the Samaritans, and the Jewish people. Now... That the Samaritans, they see that the Jews are winning. They claim there's a Mashiach and they're beating every single war. They're like, listen, this is the winning side. They say, let's make an alliance. So they send it to uh, Bar Kokhba and says, we want to make an alliance. And Bar Kokhba goes and he calls a delegation over of all the Chachamim, all the sages. And he says, listen, he says, you know, we have this opportunity of the Samaritans, the Kutim. They want to join an alliance with us and I think we should accept them. Rabbi Kiva was present over there and he says, he says, uh, why should we accept them? And so, you know, you know, uh, Bar Kokhba says, so listen, he says, well, we need another enemy. He says, I hear that the Romans are sending the, the you know, they're, they're taking the top general and they're bringing everybody in right now against us. We need all the help that we can get. So Rabbi Kiva says, oh no. He says, he says hold on a second. He says, by the time of the, of the second bit of Mikdash, the, the sages went over there and they refused them. I say the same thing. We don't need them. We got God on our side. He says, what do we need these people? They're, the ideologies are going to, they're going to infiltrate the land. They're going to, who knows what harm they'll do to our people spiritually. So, Barakawa says, no, we need them. We need them to defeat the Roman general. He says, we need them. He says, we have God on our side, Rabbi Akiva says. And, um, and, and Rabbi Akiva was obviously very against it. Uh, Bar Kokhba, Shem was obviously very for it. So he saw that it wasn't getting anywhere. He says, you know what? We'll leave it for tonight. We'll continue discussing it tomorrow. So, in the middle of that night, Rabbi Akiva goes and approaches him. And in fact, Bar Kokhba, he was so devoted that he, an- you know, he answered, you know, the, the soldiers were over there. He comes in full, in full armor. And he says, you know, he says, Rabbi Kiva, why are you coming to me on the night? This is, you know, probably such an emergent matter. He says, yeah, you know, it is an emergent matter. And he says, and he brings him up the, the, the meeting that they had that day. And he says, listen, he says, the, this is not good. He says, we have to, uh, you know, we, we should not accept the, the Samaritans, the Kudim, because just like they, they did before, it's not good. We have to have faith and belief in God. And he's going to take care of us. And he says, and, and Barakafa says over there, and he says, uh, listen, he says, uh, I don't, uh, you know, I don't rely on miracles. This is what Bar Kokhba says. And he says, I have faith in my large and powerful army. He says, as long as God doesn't interfere and doesn't help the, the enemy, we'll be able to defeat uh, the Romans even without his assistance. So Rabbi Kiva got really, he actually, you know, started ripping his clothes for like mourning. And he says, and he says, you know, Bar Kokhba, he says, you're not the Mashiach after all. He says, you're not the Mashiach. Now I see that you're really not the Mashiach. And I was fooled. He says, with his words of heresy, that's words of heretics. He says, so Barakach, you know, so, um, you know, you know, Bar, uh, Barakach goes over there and he says, he says, you think I don't care about the Jewish nation? He says, look at me, I don't even sleep at night. I still keep myself, I'm always in armor, always ready for battle. Rabbi Kiva replies to him, he says, you know, he says, God doesn't either sleep. 
says, you don't have to worry so much. God is going to take care of you. And, um, and, and being that Rabbi Akiva now separated him, Bar Kokhba t- hold, takes on a sword. And so, you know, you're rebelling. You're rebelling against the king. You deserve to die. So Rabbi Akiva says, then kill me. He says, because I'm not, I'm not standing by you anymore. So Bar Kokhba goes and he puts the sword back and he says, no, I'm not going to kill you. Then I'm going to have to deal with all your friends. And he says, um, he says, so what are you going to do now? Are you going to go and tell everybody? You know, the night. So Rabbi Akiva, Akiva thinks about it and he says, it doesn't, you know, it's not going to work that I'm going to go and tell everybody I'm going against you. I'm going to separate myself for you. And that's what happened. He went and he said, Rabbi Kiva went and Rabbi Kiva separated him himself from, from Bar Kofa. Now, Rabbi Kiva was out traveling. And, uh, so he went to this, uh, to this town. And this town was, you know, during this time, the Romans were starting to come in. And, uh, so, so the, the town was, they had obviously, like in many towns, it had, uh, a wall around it. And they, they knock and they say there was, excuse me, him and one of his students. And he says, his student says, you know, uh, can we go in? And, you know, I don't know, I guess they looked at the people, or whatever it was, and he says, uh, and, you know, uh, no, we don't let anybody in. He says, what do you mean? He says, you know, it's Rabbi Kiva over here and, and his student. He says, he says, no, we, we don't, we don't let anybody in. We don't know. You guys could be Roman, uh, spies, and you're gonna come in, you open the gate at night, and we're all gonna be die. We have a rule, we don't let anybody in. And he said, the, the great Rabbi Akiva, you're not gonna let in, he's right over here. And he says, he says, but the fact that you're telling me that Rabbi Akiva is right outside, I know for sure you're lying. Cause we know that Rabbi Akiva is bar, with Bar Kokhba. We know that that's where he is. Back then, they didn't have like you know newspapers that says oh, you know Rabbi Kiva's coming to town, posters everywhere. They, you know they, they didn't know how it looks unless you saw him. You didn't you knew otherwise you didn't know. So um, Rabbi Kiva says you know call man of Rahman al What are we supposed to do? So so they went. They took their belongings and they went to the nearby forest to find shelter for the night. Uh, so they go into the in, into the um, forest and they had they had a few a few items in them. They had a candle, they had a rooster, and they had a donkey. And they're sitting in there, you know, the night falls, so they have the, the candle all lit, they're learning, and all of a sudden it rains, you know, winds and rain and starts falling and it, and it takes out the, the candle. So, Rabbi Kiva says, Everything that God does, God does for the best. Short while later, you know, they hear a roar, and they look and they see a lion kill their donkey, devour the donkey. And again, they say, you know, everything that God does, God does for the best. So while after that, they see another wild animal goes and kills a rooster as well. And again, Rabbi Kiva says, everything that God does, God does for the best. And the student says, what do you mean everything? You know, like, we, we're, we're stranded here with nothing. Kiva says, everything that God does, God does for the best. The next day, you know, they wake up in the early morning, they hear marching. And they hear, you know, they, they smell smoke and they, and they, you know, they get up from the, I guess they get to a high tree, whatever it is, that they're able to peek on what's going on. And they see that the entire town that they try to get into was up in flames. And they see the whole Roman troops are all around it. During the night, the Roman troops came and they burged into the town and they went and they killed everybody. They killed, which what they did to many towns back then. And Rabbi Kiva goes and he says, you see, everything that God does, God does for the best. If we had a light, you didn't think they would see us? Of course they would see us from there. You know, you have a light in, that, in, in nothing. It dispels, a little light dispels a lot of darkness. So, and then he goes and says, if we had a donkey, it would have made noise. We would have seen it. And if we had a rooster, what it would have done in the early morning, it would have, you know, and then they would have, because everything happened, that's why we are alive today. And the, the Roman, the Roman, uh, you know, army started doing this from town to town. There was a few strand, uh, you know, stragglers that were able to go run out and they ran to, to Bar Kokhba. When Bar Kokhba hears about what's going on to the, the, pl- the entire place and he sees like, you know, a bunch of, um, you know, a bunch of, you know, people that were able to, I guess you call them refugees. They ran from other places. So he decided they need to do something because they hear about the, the tremendous amount of army. So he goes and he says, um, and he says, uh, I I just remembered something that I had to tell you because uh, uh, before I'm sorry for going out of order. We spoke about. Remember, we said that the 24,000 students uh, died. I didn't tell you who says it. So there's one opinion that I heard that says it that they died in the um, they died in the army with Bar Kokhba's army and Reb Herschel Schachter 
quotes it, says it in one of his speeches in the name of um, Rav Heinken, that the, the, those 24,000 actually died in the revolt. They were actually soldiers of, of, uh, um, of, Rabbi, of uh, Bar Kochva. But in any case, going back, so, so um, Bar Kochva now decides what he's going to do. He has this Roman, so they decided, because now they, they actually formed an alliance with the Samaritans. They actually didn't listen to Rabbi Kiva, they formed an alliance, and he decided that he is going to... Um, you know, besides forming an alliance, they need they need sort of a, a ground, a place where they could fortify it, and they could go and and uh, um, you know against the attack of the of the Roman of the Roman huge uh, you know uh, army that's coming. So they decided that one of the the Samaritans says, "Listen, there's a place called Betar, which has the the walls are so impenetrable. We should go over there. That has you know enough food over there. It has we'll be able to withstand sieges over there. We should go over there." And Barakov agrees with it, and they call everybody over to Betar. And they go into into Bitar. Obviously, any refugee that comes in, they they obviously welcome all the refugees. And um, uh, so so you know, after a while, you know, the Roman Empire goes and, and is able to con- conquer almost all of of Israel at that point in time. But they couldn't conquer Bitar, so they laid siege to the entire Bitar. They laid siege for over two years, over two years. And meanwhile, you know, Bar Kokhba was there. They couldn't they couldn't come in. They were they held it up really well. And they go and they say, um, you know, the the Samaritans are, and the Kutim are there as well. The Kutim, in particular. So they, you know, the Kutim were, you know, when they signed up for this, they signed up for a quick victory. They signed up for the ability to win them. That's it, you know, yalla and and you know we're gonna, we're, you know, fame and honor and and money. That's what they signed on. But now it's been two years and they're sitting over there and they're under a siege. What are you supposed to do? So. The, one of the, um, one of the servants goes over to the, to the head mat, to the one of the, the one in charge of the Kutim, and he says, listen, he says, what, let's surrender to the Romans. He says, it's not gonna happen. We're two years over here. So, um, so the, the, the one in charge of the Kutim says, listen, he says, you know, I agree with you. I would love to surrender, but what are we supposed to do? Rabbi Eleazar Amudai, which is one of the great sages that are, that is in Beitar, he, he asked, you know, already, it was his uncle, was Bar Kokhba. The big rabbi, his uncle was Bar Kokhba. And he says, enough, let's surrender to the Romans. And Bar Kokhba was very upset. Says we'll never surrender. Says if anybody ever brings up surrender again, they're dead. So he says, "What am I supposed to do? I'm too scared to even bring this up to him." So he goes and he says, um, and and the servant says, "To listen, he says I grew up in Beitar. I know this place. There's one particular house that there's a tunnel." That there's a tunnel that goes, there's a secret tunnel that goes from, you know, from inside the walls, and it goes under, and it could, I could sneak out. I'm able to go through that tunnel, and when I get to the other side, I could speak to the person in charge, and I'll tell them the situation. Maybe they'll cut us a deal with that. So the guy says, the guy in charge says, you know, that's an excellent idea. I want you to do it. It just turns out that the the Romans at, the, at that point in time they were they were suffering tremendously. They were dying. They were having diseases. The siege was not going well. Two two years not budging. They told Hadrian says, listen, there's nothing that we can do. We got to leave. So Hadrian says, I don't believe it. He says, I want to come. Down. So Hadrian comes down himself, and he sees the scenario, and he says, "You know what?" He says they were about to give up. They were about to say, "Look, all right, you know, let's leave it." During this time, when Hadrian was there, that's when this, this servant of the Kutim comes in, and they bring him in, and they say, "Listen, we caught this guy roaming outside," and he says he's from the outside. He says he wants to speak to the person in charge about uh, surrendering and, and and taking over the town. So they bring him in. And he says, listen, he says, there's a secret passage I'll show it to you. He says, in like a certain amount of time, in a certain days of time, you'll come in. And we'll let you in on the other side. You'll put, it was, it was a particular house that was actually in possession of the Kutim also. So it worked out very well for them. And he says, uh, but on one condition, you know, and they had obviously the conditions that we have to survive and our, our people and whatever, a few things. And they agreed to it. They said, of course, they were, they, they were, they were on the last straws and says, well, 
we got it. It says, in the day that we're going to come in, they told them, they, they set up the day, it says, everybody who's in charge with your group, let them wear like a white band tied onto their arms so we know not to kill them and not to hurt them. And they said, fine. And they go, he goes and he leaves, he, he leaves the, the campgrounds, he goes back into the tunnel and he comes out. He goes and visits his master, the servant, and uh, the, char- the one in charge of all the Kutimimi visits. And he says, listen, he says, this is the idea, we have it and everything is set up. The master is so happy, he goes and he gives him a, a purse full of gold coins. He says, this is for you just for now. And there's going to be way more when we get all our honors when the Romans come in. And uh, during this time, you know, he's, you know, some, you know, ignorant guy has a, you know, where does he go? He goes to the local wine shop. He goes to the local wine shop to, to celebrate. So he goes and, um, you know, but before he before he uh, goes to the to the wine shop, he, he goes and he stops into to the Jewish synagogue. Well, you know, not that they believed in those stuff, they still uh, served the idol, but he goes and stops in the Jewish synagogue, and he goes in over there, and he sees the entire place is empty, one person is out over there, one person is over there, one person is praying, and that's Rabbi Lezer Amudai, he would always pray constantly, like long hours, constantly praying for the survival of Jewish, uh, you know, state, and, and you know, to have, so that God should have mercy, so, you know, this person is looking, this, this servant, uh, that this betrayer, this traitor, goes and looks at him and says, look at this fool, this old man, he's sitting over there, he's so devoted in his prayers, I guarantee if I go into him, he's not even going to hear me, he says, in fact, even the entire Roman government comes in over here and takes over that and he's so engrossed in his praise he's not even going to realize it and he goes over to him and says no one's around and he looks around no one's over there and he says you fool Rabbi Lezer didn't even uh, you know, budge he's still concentrating and he says you know your prayers are going to be in vain he says you're not going to be able to redeem the city he says in a few days time or with a certain amount of time the Romans are going to come in here they're going to take over everything and you know Obviously, you know, Rabbi, you know, Rabbi Lezer was so engrossed in his, in his prayers, he didn't even realize that. He didn't even, and, uh, um, during this time when he was sort of speaking to Rabbi Lezer, the caretaker came back, cause he knew that Rabbi Lezer takes a long time to, to pray, so he wanted to lock up. And he comes back, and he, who does he see? He sees in the distance the, these two people talking. He, what appears to be talking, really, and this is concentrating and praying, and he doesn't realize that. So he realizes that, you know, they're having a conversation, so he gets up, and he, and he leaves. So, uh, uh, after, afterwards he goes and he takes his findings as servant and he goes to the wine shop and he starts, you know, uh, pounding some wine. And, you know, after, you know, a nice amount of glasses, he gets very tipsy, very, you know, very drunk. And, you know, uh, you know, people that were in the area, they were talking obviously about politics and they're saying, you know, the Romans, they're dying out. We hear that, you know, the time is coming for them that they're going to, you know, they're going to soon, you know, close off everything and they're going to leave out over here. And meanwhile, this guy, the servant is listening to it and he says, he starts, you know, piping up all the, you know, wine gives him a lot of, uh, courage. And he says, oh, you think that the Romans are going to come in here, they're going to take care of everybody. They're going to, you know, and he's and he's like literally, like not specifically spilling beans, but he's very much pro the Romans. So the you know the Jews are in there, but look at this, we have a trade over here. Look at the confidence that he's speaking. How the Romans are coming in over here. It says uh, you know, so um, they actually it was almost going to be a brawl going on. So they you know they stop and says, oh, let's bring him, let's bring this trader to Bar Kochma and let him decide what it's uh, what's going to happen. So. They bring him to, to Bar Kokhba, and um, Bar Kokhba goes and he starts interrogating him. And he says, listen, you know, and, and by this time he starts getting sobering up. And Bar Kokhba starts, you know, asking me these questions. He's getting really nervous. And he says, no, no, I, you know, I didn't mean, like, obviously very much denying the fact, but he didn't do a good job. So Bar Kokhba goes and he says, if you tell me the truth, I'll let you live. So at this point in time, this servant, you know, uh, evil idea had, uh, you know, hatched into his head. And he says, fine. He says, you know what, I'll tell you the truth. And he says, um, he says, you, you know, Rabbi Lazar Amada, your, your, your uh, uncle, you know, so, uh, you know, I met him. And he uh, paid me to kill you because, you know, he says, we need to, we need to go and we need to subjugate. We need to, you know, sur- uh, surrender. Otherwise, all the Jewish people are going to die. And, you know, and here, to have the proof, here is a purse full of gold coins that he paid me to, to kill you. 
So he says, my own uncle, the big guy, he says, it doesn't make any sense. He would kill me. He says, bring in my uncle. Call in my uncle. So they call in the, the Rabbi Lazar Hamadai. They come to Rabbi Kachma and he says, oh, you know, what does my king desire? Rabbi Kachma says, so Rabbi Kachma answers him. He says, you call me, my, you call me king? He says, you still believe me? He's like, of course. What, what's that? He says, didn't you hire me to, uh, didn't you hire somebody to kill me? He says, you kidding me? So why would I ever do that? He says, oh, he says, because you want to surrender. He says, it's true. You know, I do want to, to surrender. Everybody knows that. He says, but I'll never go again and, and you know, I'll kill you. Why would I, you know, God forbid. So, he calls over the, he calls out the, the servant and he says, uh, and he, and he goes over to his uncle and he says, do you know this guy? The uncle looks at him and says, I've never saw him before in my life. So he goes over, so the, Rabbi goes over to the servant and says, so, you know, what do you have to say? He says, listen, you know, I spoke to him today. He says, you don't believe me. He was a caretaker, so I was conversing. Go call the caretaker of the synagogue. So they call the caretaker over, and Bar Kachma says, has, has, have you ever seen these two people talking? And the caretaker says, yeah, you know, today I was in, I was going to close up the, the synagogue, and, you know, I saw these two are conversing while, you know, so I decided to leave them alone. So Bar Kachma got so upset about his uncle, Rabbi Lezabad, that he, you know, and he went and he, he stood up, and he gave him a very powerful kick on his chest, you know, whatever, some sort of, uh, of, of powerful blow. And Bar Kachma, you know, like, you know, obviously Bar Kachma was a tremendous strength. Rabbi Elezer was like taking his last breaths, and he says, he says, what have you done? Rabbi Lazar says, he says, he says, I'm, I'm, one, I'm your most loyal friend, your most loyal person. And then he goes and he says, and his last words, he says, dear God, please don't punish him for, and, and have compassion on my people. And with that, Rabbi Elazar Mandai passes away. After Rabbi Elazar Mandai passed away, people already saw that like the presence of God, the, the Barkhafa's power, it already started, you know, diminishing. And, um, uh, you know, a short while later was the ninth of Av. And the ninth of Av is when they, when they orchestrated that the entire Roman army started piling out from a house within the, within the, within the, within the grounds. And people were like, how, what's going on? How are the Romans over here? So people started screaming treason, treason, treason. And the entire, you know, Barkhafa army came in and they saw like Romans were piling out, so they started fighting. They fight in, with inside the, 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 the ground. The Barakakhafar's army was so strong they were able actually to subdue the entire area. And now the, 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 um, the Kutim were fighting also against the, the, you know, the Jews. So you had, you had, you had like coming from outside and coming with, war with inside. With all of that, they were still able to subdue it. They were still able to go and, and bring the, the, um, you know, the place where people were infiltrating from that secret passage into a lock. But the problem was since they were away from the walls, they were, the, the Romans were able to breach one of the walls. And when the women were able to breach one of the walls, the, um, you know, they, um, you know, they started coming in and that, that's when it started taking for the, um, that's when it started taking for, uh, for the worse. Now, but, um, this servant that was, you know, being put in front of trial by Barakhba started screaming to Barakhba. He says, "Give up! Stop it!" He says, "It's useless. Surrender to the Romans." And Barakhba puts it all together, and he sees there was something fishy. Barakhba picks up this huge boulder and he throws like a bomb straight at the servant, and it hits him square on. And the servant was, you know, a few minutes away from death. And as as he's dying, he says, you know, his last words were. He says, your uncle was innocent. I guess he had some subconscious bothering him. He says, your uncle was innocent. And he says, and you are his murder. When Barakafa heard about this, he dropped his sword. He was, he was, he felt faint. He leaned against the wall and he couldn't, he couldn't believe it. He says, you know, this is what it, you know, how, how far he went down. And while he didn't notice it, but there was a snake during the breach of the wall, the snake came, the snake came out of there, jumped at Barakafa, twirled around, you know, him and, and killed Barakafa. One of the, um, one of the Kutim went and chopped Barakhafa's head and went and brought him to, to Hadrian. And the Jews did not surrender. The Jews fought till the, to the very end. And it was a brutal, brutal, uh, death, uh, for, for the Jews. In fact, everybody, except for two people that, uh, survived that entire, the entire massacre. It was over half a million Jews that died in that day. And this is one of the things that we mourn on the 9th of Av. It happened the 9th of Av, the same day that we did, that the base, that Beth was destroyed. Um, 
So the um, uh, during this time, the, the obviously the Roman government was able to take control back of Israel, and they, you know, it, it was uh, obviously with much more hatred and and you know against the Jewish people that they ref- they, they did not allow anything. Hadrian says no Torah, no mitzvot, no nothing. You're not allowed to do anything. If anybody is caught studying Torah, you're sentenced to death right away. Now. There is a certain uh, things that, you know, the real estate Lily actually brings it down, and he says, you know, like, if let's say somebody goes and says, I'm going to kill you if you don't serve Abu Dazara. So there's three things that you have to rather die than, than serve. And one of those is someone puts a gun to your, to your head and says, if you don't survive idols, I'm going to kill you, you have to kill yourself. You have to let yourself be killed. The three things are murder, idolatry, and immorality, sexual immorality. Uh, but, he says, anything else, so if someone puts a gun to your head and says, if you don't eat this pork, I'm going to, I'm going to kill you. Uh, you're, uh, you're obligated to eat the pork. You eat the pork. And, um, this is, however, if, if they're doing it in a certain manner. If, however, the purpose, the prosecutor, the reason why they're pointing the gun into your head and making you do a violation is because they want you to, um, is that, that they want to, to, um, to pull you away from God. And they want to, um, turn you away from God. That's the whole purpose. So you're not allowed to do anything. You have to give up your life for everything. If, it, if it's for that purpose that they're doing it. And, uh, Rabbi Kiva says, listen, he says, what can happen if we don't teach our, our children Torah? The, the, look at the, look at the, look at the Russian, uh, you know, population in the past few hundred, you know, it's actually not even a few hundred years. But look at the, you know, the more, what was the, you aren't allowed to teach Torah. You aren't allowed to continue with it. And because of that, you see the intermarriage, there's so much that, they, that we lost because of that. He says, could you imagine, so Rabbi Kiva saw this, says, we can't stop teaching Torah. If we stop teaching Torah, the, Gen- the Jewish nation is going to stop to cease to exist. So, he went and he started, he started, uh, you know, continue teaching Torah. Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Akiva went and he started teaching Torah. And Hadrian went on, on a crazy killing spree. Crazy killing spree. In fact, he was walking and a Jew went and a Jew uh, greeted him. He says, how dare you greet me? And he went and he killed him. And then he, you know, kept on walking, and you know, uh, you know, a few days later, a few a short while later, and a Jew heard what happened, so he didn't greet him. So he goes to Jew, how dare you not greet me? And he goes and he kills him also. So one of the servants goes over to him and says, "Hey, I don't understand." He says, For "Him you kill because you didn't greet. Him you kill because you greet. Well, what's going on?" He says, "Hey, this is what do you think it matters?" He says, "I just want to kill them. This is just an excuse." So that obviously the Jewish nation will go into tremendous, tremendous uh, uh, subjugation, and. Um, the, um, the Rabbi Akiva said he's not going to stop teaching Torah. He's going to continue teaching Torah. And there was a guy by the name of Papus, Papus Ben Yehuda. We spoke about him originally, one of the, the potential uh, marriage partners for Rachel, for uh, Rabbi Akiva's first wife. And Papus goes to him and says, Rabbi Akiva, he says, what are you doing? You're putting yourself in danger. Sakanat nefashot, what are you doing? Why are you putting yourself in danger and, and teaching Torah? So Rabbi Akiva says, let me tell you a parable. And we're going to finish in a few minutes. We're almost done. So uh, he goes and he says, and he says, um, he says, you know, there was once a fox. This fox came over to, to water, uh, near the water. And the water, there was a, there was a bunch of fishermen trying to catch a bunch of fish for, for their job, for the business. And the fish was trying to, you know, avoid the nets, avoid the hooks. So the fox goes over to the fish and says, listen, fish. He says, come on land, I'll protect you. So the fish goes and says to this fox, I thought you were the smartest of all the animals. He says, I should come into land? He says, my whole survival is in the water. If I get out of the water, I can't survive. Rabbi Akiva says, our Jewish nation, our whole survival is of the Torah. He says, if you're telling me to stop teaching Torah, we're not going to survive. He says, we need to survive. And he goes and he continues to, and he tells, and he tells Papas, and he says, I'm going to continue teaching. He says, says that this is the source of our lives is the Torah. And he goes and he continues. And not too far afterwards, Turnus Rufus goes and has Rabbi Akiva arrested for, um, for, for uh, uh, teaching Torah. And he puts him in prison. And he puts him in prison, and somehow Rabbi Yeshua, 
from Gersal was able to go and visit him, one of his students. And he goes and he's able to, uh, was able to visit him. And he would always bring him water so that he could wash and eat a little bit. So one day that he's, he goes in and he brings, you know, like this bucket of water. And the guard goes and he says, and he looks and he says, you know, he says, what's up with all this water you bring in? Let me see how much water you got. And he sees, you know, he's bringing, you know, a substantial amount of water. So he says, he says, what? humans don't need to drink that much water. He takes the water and spells out half of it. And he says he could take the rest, the, the half of it all. So, you know, sure not able to, you know, he goes and he brings, the, you know, his rabbi, Rabbi Kiva, the, the half of the water. And Rabbi Kiva, and he explains to him, you know, he says, you know, the, they, they spill the, the other half of the water. So Rabbi Kiva goes and he uses the remaining water to wash his hands before he eats bread. So Rabbi, you know, Rabbi Shul says, listen, you know, my dear Rabbi, he says, Rabbi, if you're going to wash your hands, you're not going to have anything to drink. And we know that, you know, that's, that's, you know, you can't not drink. Water is, is, is a, you know, imperative for survival. So he goes and he says, he says, what am I supposed to do? The sages ordained that we have to wash before we eat bread. He says, I can't eat bread before, without washing. And he goes and uses all his water to wash and, and then he, and then he eats the bread. When the, when the sages heard Rabbi Akiva in his old age, this is right before he died, this is how he's serving God with, with, you know, who knows what, you know, how, how sick and how his health was. He says, imagine how much he would serve God when he was in full of health. So, while Rabbi Akiva was in prison, they had a few, you know, he, he was a leader of the generation, and he had a few, they had a few, um, things that needed to be discussed that, that you know, halachot, that only Rabbi Akiva could go and, and paskin. But they said they couldn't, you know, Rabbi, Rabbi Shua was able to only go because of connections he was able to have. He says, how are we supposed to do it? How are we supposed to get questions to Rabbi Akiva? So they would, they would go and sort of like walk around the, the guard, the, the prison over there and start screaming out, like, who wants to buy vegetables? Who wants to buy this? And then, and then they would scream out also the case that they had, the problem. So there's one particular case that they, that they, uh, scream out that there was a woman who was in prison with uh, with her brother-in-law and uh, they needed to do yibam or chalitza which means uh, you know they had to marry her you know they, she died without she married her his brother without any kids so that the, what the brother supposed to do is either supposed to marry her or give her chalitza which means not the, uh, um, to avoid the whole marriage so they did that they were both in prison they did that but the problem was they did it without a bezdin they did it without people watching them so they didn't know, is this considered good or is this not considered good? So they go and they start, uh, uh, they, you know, they start, you know, selling, oh, we're selling peaches, apples, and this. And what happens to a woman who does, uh, you know, chalitza, not in presence of any, of any sages? Rabbi Kiva hears this. So he screams back out, it sounds kosher. Sounds kosher to me. And he's over there. And so he, Paskin's over there. There was another thing that came up is there, is, um, they had a, a question. So we know that there's a lunar, there's lunar years, right? I believe in every, um, what was it? Every 19 years or seven leap years in the Jewish calendar. So in order to, because we go by the lunar calendar and the solar calendar is a difference of a thing about 11 days. So every few years, about, you know, we, every about three-ish years, depending on the thing, we have another leap year to, to compensate. So this way, all our, all our holidays fall out in the same period of time. Pesach falls out in Aviv, you know, everything falls out in, in a particular time. This is why the, the, for example, Islam, which also follows the lunar calendar, their Ramadan, for example, always changes throughout the year because it constantly it makes a cycle. So, the problem was is that Hadrian, during the oldest prosecution to the Jewish nation, the, they weren't able to institute. In, in leap years, you can't just be like, okay, now it's the time for the, the sages of Chachamim will come together and they would institute a, a leap year. The problem was through all these years of subjugation, they couldn't. They missed a few leap years and now they need to make it up. The question is that you can't make up one leap year after another unless you have the big Chachamim come together and discuss it. And who is the big Chachamim at the time? Rabbi Akiva. So they start, they all, again, they brought up this, this case over here in front of Rabbi Kiva. And Rabbi Kiva says that you do, you are able to go and, and do a leap year after another. I believe they did three leap years in a row. Uh, but each, each leap year, the Bezin would have to establish them each time. You can't do it every year, they're gonna have to reestablish it. So, uh, a short while later was Arab Yom Kippur. And they decided that Rabbi Kiva is gonna die. 
And that was, that was his end. And they take out Rabbi Akiva, and they weren't just going to hang him, they were going to torture him to death. And the way that Rabbi Akiva died was, um, they took this, this iron comb. Like, imagine these, 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 like, sharp, throngs of, of iron. They burnt it. They put it on fire. And then they put Rabbi Akiva, they tied Rabbi Akiva down and they took him and they combed his, his flesh off. And as they were combing his flesh off, you know, he was sitting there, not uttering a word, not screaming and not in pain. So, you know, the, you know, the, the sages, you know, the students were nearby. They were, they were, obviously everyone has to go and be present for this. And it says, you know, you know, Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, what are you doing? He says, he says, uh, you know, what's going on over here? And Rabbi Akiva says, you know, he, he goes over to them. He's even teaching them on the, on, while he's being tortured to death. Can you imagine the pain of the torture of having burning iron going through your body and, you know, being combed, your skin being combed and you uh, only can only, uh, you know, Rahman on magic. And he's, this, whatever Rabbi Akiva says, instead of screaming, he's thinking and he says, he says, he tells the students, he says, you know, we always learn, we say in Kriyat you have to serve your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So how are you supposed to serve God with all your soul? It's always bothered me. And now I realize I could serve with all my soul because on the, um, even on my death, I could serve God. And with that, he goes and he puts his hand over his eyes to say, And he says, And when he finishes, that's when his soul, uh, his soul, his soul goes up to the next world. And he says, you know, he passed away on Echad, just like he was one uh, with God. He went and he was later buried. It's an interesting story how he became, went to bury. We don't have the time for it for today. But he was later buried in Tveria. Also, his wife, Rachel, is also buried in, in, uh, in Tveria. Now, although the, you know, the entire, you know, Rekiva was a Godaladar, the, the, the biggest giant of the generation. And, you know, while it was a, a terrible, terrible passing in the morning of the Jewish nation, unfathomable, you know, the Rabbi Akiva, even though he passed away in a very, you know, uh, hor- horrific death, he didn't, you know, he, he, his, his words, his Torah still lives on. And it lives on when we're learning. The Torah that we're learning is only him. You look at, you look at Rabbi Akiva, you look at somebody with what he went through in life. You don't realize, you're reading a Gemara, you hear stories about, you don't realize what this person went through. You don't realize that this person came from an ignorant shepherd, a penniless shepherd, didn't have any money, worked for somebody, hated the Chachamim. And look at what he became. And he didn't become it easy. He didn't have it easy. He went and even though he married a wealthy woman, he was struck and penniless. He was poor. And he lived his life in, in poverty for a majority of it. And studying Torah day in and day out and persevering and constantly tearing apart the Torah, saying about, okay, why is this over here? Why is this over there? And because of that, he became who he became. He went, and even after he became that, you think it stopped over there where everything was, was cruising for him? He went through troubles and he started going and traveling throughout the entire, who knows how many travels that he had to go through to, um, for the Jewish nation. He gave up everything for the Jewish nation. And he, not only did he give up everything at the end, when it seems like he gave up anything, he really gave to the Jewish nation. He really gave everything to the Jewish nation. And we have to take this, this lesson, this amazing, amazing story that we hear from, from Rabbi Akiva. There are so many lessons that we can, the greatness is all in here. So if you want to become great, learn. Learn from Rabbi Akiva. Learn how, let's take a few lessons. You know, we have a, uh, two minutes, let's take a few lessons. Number one, never give up. You see over here, Rabbi Akiva never gave up. He lost 24,000 students. Easy could have given up. In fact, we can backtrack it. He started learning when he was 40 years old. You know how many people says, listen, I'm too old. What am I going to start sitting and learning to? Oh, I'm already set in my ways. People say that when they're 20, 30, 40, 50. Who knows? Rabbi Kiba was 40 years old, didn't even know how to read. And he says, no, I'm not going to give up. And he goes and he perseveres. And he goes and finally he goes and he reaches. He reaches the top. He reaches the, tip, the tippy top. 24,000 students. God says, I'm taking them all back. He takes all the 24,000 students. Another reason to give up. Nobody doesn't. He keeps on going. And because of that, he was able to continue with his five students. And he was able to continue and spread the Torah to the entire nation. Besides the fact that, that he started off being extremely poor. 
says, listen, he says, I'm going to do what I have to do. And if you realize, he ended off an extremely wealthy man. Very, very wealthy. He started off with nothing. He ended off with everything, spiritually and physically. We titled these uh, series From Rags to Riches. Because he went from rags, from really from nothing, spiritually and physically, to everything. So he went to the riches, spiritually and physically. And may we internalize these lessons. May we actually grow from these things. Uh, and, and may we actually also learn from the, the, from, from the students. And what does Rabbi Akiva says? It says you have to love your friend like yourself. The lessons that we have, we could go until today, until tomorrow, and it's running late. So, may we internalize this. May we learn from Rabbi Akiva. And may we only grow from this. And may we realize the greatness can, that can be achieved from each and every single one of us. Chazak You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.